Good morning, everybody. Um, I guess um, <laughs> when I told Nikki that I was speaking this morning, she said, you, <laughs> you're the last person who should speak on this stuff because this is about, you know, New Zealand and its history. And, and uh, you know, so because I'm a Manahiri, I'm a, a recent guest, you know, who's making my home here, been here for five years. So, um, but sometimes there is something about bringing a fresh pair of eyes that things that you have taken for granted and you just think, oh, yeah, that's a thing, you know, it's like, Wow, that's an, uh, that's just not a thing anywhere else, and it's a thing here. You're like, oh, you see, you see things slightly differently. So, so I hope that um, that I can bring something of that if my, you know, scholarship of the history of New Zealand is 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 very much with learner plates on. Um, so just to say that, and um, and I'm very grateful for um, uh, some of the material that I've kind of got to share. Um, there's a guy called Dave Mann who I think there's a link to talk about him in the notes who runs something called the Hope Project, which has done a lot of his, historical, I guess, research and, you know, kind of bringing together some of um, the connection between God's story and New Zealand's history um, in, a, in, a, in an amazing way. So so this is what we're talking about today, walking together, staying the course. I'm going to share a few things and um, then I'm going to ask Johnny to come up and I'm going to ask him a few questions. Um, we'll then uh, have a time where we can uh, just open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit and we'll, we'll probably sing a, another song and then we'll maybe just have a bit of time uh, just to give you a bit of advance warning. You know, in, in kind of little groups just to maybe have a, a bit of a chat about, about where you are and what, what you think God's up to in your life in relation to this this kind of area. So so just want to start with this, which is... Um, this is... Uh, uh, well-known passage in Amos, and um, it's it's probably it comes in a, a section of of prophecy, and there's a whole series of almost like rhetorical questions. It's a bit like you know, de bears in the woods, you know, kind of stuff. You know, very obviously the answer is yes. So, so and God says uh, through the prophet, do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so? Do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so? And and I think that's um, that's really uh, a really critical question and a very relevant question for what we're looking at today. Um, I, as I was reflecting, I was thinking, well, what does it mean to be a, a person of faith? You know, we agreed to walk with God, and that means we agreed to walk with each other. But to be a person of faith and to be a people who inhabit a particular place and time. You remember from last year, our series on being God's image talked about us being embodied people. We, we are in a place. We are not in lots of places. We're, we're rooted somewhere. And we're rooted here. So for us, the place is Aotearoa, New Zealand. And um, I guess ever since I made this place my home five years ago, it's been apparent to me, and particularly as, as I found my home here at Urban, that we sort of express our faith and life together in some ways that reflect the uniqueness that is our history in this nation. Sometimes we sing Waiata Reo like we have this morning as part of our worship. And um, as I sort of you know, kind of began my own journey to understand all of that, I was seeing that many churches and Christian leaders were making a really conscious journey um, towards being a what I'd call a Turanga Waiwai, a place of grace and safety to stand. For Maori, Tangata Whenua, the people of the land, and for all the rest of us who call New Zealand our home, Tangata Tiriti. I was really struck by that journey, and uh, one thing that stands out, we went down to um, Beach Church at Kapiti Coast, and I remember hearing from young Maori leaders, and the healing tears from hearing praises to God in Te Reo in their own, own language. 
um, and the manakitanga, the generous hospitality, and the elevating of the manner of those who had a history of their culture being suppressed, and how healing it was to, you know, people. I'm just realizing how recently some of the, uh, some of the, um, even like corporal punishment for using Maori words is is very quite recent in, in history and is passed down, uh, you know, and and within living generations. So I was really struck by that. Um, now you can't, I guess, fail if you've unless you've haven't had uh, the news on in New Zealand for about the last you know six months. You probably can't fail to notice that the old sort of cross party consensus about this journey has fractured somewhat, and there is a tension and a desire um, by some to sort of revisit how we live the tertiary, and uh, it's getting a bit fractious and tense, shall we say? Now, look, such moments do come and go politically. But we walk in step with a spirit, which means we're not going to dance to the tune of any earthly politicians of any stripe. But neither do we shy away from the truth that we live for just because things have got a bit sensitive in the world, because we live under God's revelation. So now this weekend, you know, is a is a special weekend. Waitangi Day is a cu- our culture marking special days. And, you know, we see that biblically, right? God loves marking special days. And fe- you know, think about seven feasts, the Feast of Passover. So meaningful for us, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Trumpets, and the Feast of Harvest. And you can kind of, in your mind, you're kind of just, just thinking about like Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and his second coming, right? As you think all of those things were prefiguring something, but they were marked through celebrations and, uh, and feasting and eating together. It's a great part. I, I like it. I particularly like the food. It's great. But, um, so, but you know, in, in the context of this nation, Waitangi sort of day celebrates an agreeing to walk together of two peoples. And it's sort of a way of reaffirming that agreement. Now, Johnny started the year talking about Choose Life, which was a retelling uh, to a new generation by Moses and a new invitation in the context of the covenant to say, and again, what will you choose? What will you choose? You know, it wasn't the first time they'd heard it, but he kind of brought it all together and told the history again and the story again and then called for a response again. So, but how do we keep, how do we sort of bring a biblical lens to these things? I guess is my question because it would be easy just to kind of see this from a naturalistic perspective. So with your forbearance, I'm going to look at four things briefly. Um, just the text, the story, the spirituality, the biblical framework, and the journey. So the text, because objective truth actually matters. It matters what's true. It matters what events were. It matters what's been said and written. The story, because context brings meaning, the outworking of the purpose of God through our tipuna, our ancestors in Christ, is a key part of this story. And the spirit, because how we bring a biblical understanding of these things, really, it's really going to matter. And the journey, because with all of these things, the question is, so how shall we live? How shall we live then in light of what we know and in light of what we've, we've understood? So... If we just start then with a text, now I don't know, you may, this, this is maybe really old hat to you, but it's kind of good to me to kind of get it down. So, so here are two texts side by side, okay? The left is an English translation of the Tariya Maori text, uh, translated by treaty people cited in the network Waitangi Resource, um, which is a great resource I got from the gift shop when I went to Waitangi. And um, the right is a transcript of the English text, which is from Tapapa, the museum. Now, it's had some minor edits where you can see italics. That's me minor editing for length, basically, where the things just wouldn't have fit on the slide otherwise. Um, so so that's really what, what that is. Now, what you can see from this, there are kind of four things in there. Um, 
and uh, kind of with a subtle, subtle emphasis difference between the left and the right. Um, and the four things broadly are, firstly, there is permission to the Queen's representative to exercise some kind of governance in the land. Second is there's a guarantee by the Crown to preserve Maori authority over land and treasure. Thirdly, there's a protection and an upholding the same rights and duties as British subjects for all people. And fourthly, there's a protection for all of us to, to be free to live out our faith and spirituality. Okay, so they're the four nuggets, really, those four, four articles, three of which were written, and the fourth was oral. But one of the things about Māori um, culture is that oral uh, connections, oral agreements, have precedence over written agreements. And the key thing is that the whole thing was read out. So on the day that it happened, uh, they read out, read it out as a, as, a, as, a, as a kind of thing, and it was heard and it was talked about. Um, so... So now, um, you know, so the, that was uh, Al Al Reverend Alistair Rees, who's a historian and theologian. He pointed out that the Sharia rest was read out to the 500 Maori at, at Waitangi as an oral agreement with a written record. Um, now, you can see that there are those two points of difference there, and they've been the uh, subject of some people getting hot under the collar, some, some sort of, you might say, vigorous debate since. And there are these two words. Um, so the first is, uh, if you notice, that Article 1 seems to talk about sovereignty on the English side, but talks about kawanatanga, which is a word that doesn't really mean sovereignty. It kind of means governorship. It means the kind of the process of governing things um, on the Māori side. And on the second article, the second article seems to uh, guarantee that Māori would keep tinaranga which is a, a word that really means the highest kind of authority, or we would say sovereignty. So, as you can see, there's a kind of difference between what you would uh, infer from those two versions. And that's, um, you know, but Article 2 in the Te Reo version is a guarantee of sovereignty for Māori over their affairs, whereas it's kind of just protection of property and land in the in the English text. And that really is what there's a lot of controversy um, about, there has been kind of um, controversy about. Now, I'm not going to um, spend a lot of time talking to you about that, but just we just need to acknowledge it, that there is some tension there. But nonetheless, those four key things, which is there's permission to exercise governance of the land, there's a guarantee to preserve Māori um, land, treasure, tonga, all the things that Māori would hold valuable, uh, which is Article 2, there's, there's protection and upholding the same rights and duties as British subjects for Māori, and there's protection for all of us in the oral fourth clause. So so those are a, st a sort of acknowledged even for people who have differences of view on those two points, um, which is which is what it says. So, uh, But what's the story? What's the story that went around that? And what meaning context does that bring? And that's really critical. So we're going to have a little look at that next. So first of all, the cast list. As I said, very grateful to Dave Mann for this. There are six people in the cast list in the story about what was happening at the time. In the centre there, Māori, Rangatira, Tanga, that means chiefs, and Tangata, the people, about 80,000 of those. Maybe some estimates say more, some estimates say less, but lots of people. Um, and they were in the centre of things. And then you can see, uh, probably in chronological order, you'd probably have like whalers, sealers, and traders, people who are kind of living off the islands and going and you know, doing that, and they basically wanted to make a good book, make a good living, and they did, did, didn't want to. They didn't want to um, get into trouble with the Maori, but they kind of they were here for the money. Fundamentally, that's what they wanted to do. Um, and then there were um, 
settlers, subjects, about 2,000 of them by 18, 1840, reckoned. Um, and then there were the, the missionaries, the missionaries here in Aotearoa and the missionaries in Sydney as well. And there was a connection back to the UK, to a place called Clapham Common in London, if you've ever been, been there. There's a, there's a Holy Trinity Church there. Uh, and um, there was probably a bit like what we would have of one of our midweek groups. You know, there was a midweek group a bit like that. But a lot of those people were really engaged in politics and reform, and they believed in, in uh, they were kind of reformers, Christian reformers, and, and real fervent believers like us. They established something called the Church Missionary Society, and that actually led to uh, people coming out to Sydney and to, and, you know, and, and to, um, to uh, New Zealand as well. And then the, the, the final people on, the, on the, the thing were the British Colonial Office. Now, they had some influence by the Clapham Christian Informers, but they also there was a big question, which was, how will they intervene in, in this? Because they're carrying, they're like a superpower, they're carrying a lot of weight. So will they, will they come and stand by the side of Maori? You know, or will they essentially stand by the side of the settlers or the whalers? You know, like what, 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 where are they going to be? landing what are they going to be doing so they're the key kind of protagonists i guess in the story and um just to walk through some of the events very potted history so you probably know the first you know 500 plus years maori arrive and they, they just live here um and so they're settled here they have a people uh numerous people they develop their ways of living um, and then, um, so we fast forward to around 1807. This is in this is wider history in the in the rest of the world outside of New Zealand. And and those Clapham reformers we were talking about from that 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 method that uh, Trinity Church on the Common there, um, they've been working in Parliament. They secure for the for the British government and therefore for the Empire a ban on slavery. It's an amazing landmark in in history. But um, but they they also um, in doing that. The William Wilberforce and some of the other believers in doing that, they also, having got that sort of success and that victory, they turn their thoughts to colonies and this notion that actually you might not enslave people, but if you take away all their land and, or, and they've got no means of production, it's kind of like slavery by another name. So they are really bugged about colonization generally, and they're thinking. There's a there's a need to bring a Christian difference into what was custom and practice for the British Empire at the time. So um, a couple of years later, there was a young Northland ch uh, chief called uh, Ruatara, and he um, basically decided to go and, and meet with a king. Uh, you know, so we went, I'll go and I'll meet and talk to him chief to chief. and went on a, a, a boat. And uh, the captain of the ship, when Elila got there, said, oh, you're just a young Murray lad. You know, you're not going to, of course you're not going to see the king. And so he locked him basically in the bottom of the ship. And uh, the guy got into a very bad way. He, had, he got tuberculosis. He was very ill. And, um, uh, and, and, and they didn't really know what to do with him. They, they whacked him on another ship that was, I think, it was on its, way to, um, on its way to Australia. So never really got to meet the king. Um, but one of the things that happened was um, there was uh, a, a guy called um, Samuel Marsden who was a, uh, a Christian leading a mission in, in, in uh, New South Wales in Sydney. And he um, found this uh, chief in the ship, found he was in a bad way, took him to his cabin. The, he and his wife nursed him while he was on the cabin took him back home to Sydney. He took about seven months to recover from his tuberculosis, and they, they loved him, and they cared for him. They showed him manangitaka, we would say. And, um, and that was a really significant thing because uh, when he'd kind of come back to, to New Zealand, to Northland, um, a little bit later, he, he kind of invited 
uh, he invited Martin, invited, uh, and, and three other families were invited as well to come. And that led to 1814, the gospel first being preached in this country by invitation of Rotara. Um, and three missionary families then settle. So, so there's 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 something interesting here. Now, the the, the church missionary society that w- that which had been set up by the those guys from Clapham was sort of connected to. They were all kind of part of the same kind of network. So, um, but what the Christians did was um, they didn't really do a lot of preaching. What they did is they made connections, they made community, and they did what we might call kind of social action projects. You know, kind of those kind of things. So they they basically. Uh, spent time building relationships and making life better in the situation that, that they were in. But what didn't happen particularly until um, about 1826, probably about another uh, 12 years, was there wasn't a lot of preaching the gospel, you know, and there weren't lots of Maori who kind of became Christians initially. So, And that changed when a guy called Henry Williams uh, came, and uh, he... Um, was big on sharing the gospel and speaking the words. And um, and some people did, some Maori did uh, become Christians. But then what happened, um, it wasn't like the missionaries sort of um, went around converting all the Maori. There was a, there was a, a, a series of quite amazing events where Maori were forgiving in really amazing circumstances and showing the love of God, living out their faith and causing other Maori to become Christians. And I think at one point I was reading from the Hope Project that there was around between two and 300 Maori evangelists essentially around the land in, in New Zealand kind of going ahead of the missionaries. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and there were, it, it got to a point where at one point uh, it was between 50 and 66% of Maori in, in, in the land would be in Te Reo speaking churches, you know, on Sundays. So they were, there was a real sense of revival uh, I guess we would call it uh, in that way, but that was um, so. That was happening. So there's some amazingly good stuff happening. But meanwhile, um, those oilers, sealers, and whalers, <laughs> who were uh, still kind of a pretty lawless bunch, um, the, the the chiefs, the North, North, Northland chiefs, wrote to the British government and said, th- "These guys are just completely lawless. Y- y- do you want to come and you know enforce your laws on them? Because if not." We're going to enforce our tikanga and our laws on them. So, um, but we think, you know, we, obviously they're your, you're your people, so we, we would like to see you do something about it. Meanwhile, back in Britain. Oh, sorry, before I do that. Um, th- and the next key thing, like four years later, was those group, that group of northern chiefs, Tawaka Mininga, got together and they, they drafted something, which is the Declaration of Independence which established New Zealand as a sovereign Maori state. So, uh, and was recognized by the British, it was recognized by other, other countries as well. And that was a difference because up until that point, really the leadership was hapu by hapu, it was kind of group by group. And this was really the first time. It wasn't every, wasn't every leader right across, it wasn't every Iwi leader right across, um, across New Zealand, but it was a big, a, a big group, a confederation of chiefs, they called it. And that confederation of chiefs is then referred to in the Treaty of Waitangi, so I think. So meanwhile in Britain, though, there were a couple of things happening. So the first is there's a guy called Wakefield who ran the New Zealand company, and they were basically like 
Uber estate agent uh, idea. So except that they would uh, come over here and buy land cheap as chips, you know, from Maori for very little, and they would offer that land to British people as a place to come out and settle. And they'd sell it at a much inflated price and make lots of money. And uh, they wanted to do that, and they were basically getting on and doing that. But then they, they influenced Parliament. They basically went to the UK Parliament to say, you know, we'd like to have a law that kind of says that we can colonise the land in that way. Now, that Clapham group were mortified. The Church Missionary Society actually wrote to Parliament and said, you, should, you can't do this. This is going to be a disaster. Don't do it. But they didn't prevail, and the law was passed. So it was like, oh. But that led to something amazing, which is that those reformers were, they wouldn't give up just because, you know, the political wind wasn't blowing their direction. So they um, continued to influence government, and they influenced government and, uh, to the point that they gave instructions to Hobson. Now, uh, William Wilberforce's nephew, I think it was, James Stevens, had this idea about what if you propose like a treaty? And what if by proposing that treaty you you basically prevent that kind of harm and the exploitation that we see. Could we restrain this wild market beast of colonialism by a, by a treaty? And guess what, with their background as Christians, with an understanding of covenant, yeah. Let's think, what would that mean? So, so there was an idea to draft something. Now, that led to um, uh, consideration in Parliament of those things. And here were the instructions that were given to Hobson, who was to come out and propose this treaty. And I just think this is really important context. So... So you can kind of see that this is, this is the government speaking, saying, look, we, we know New Zealand is important. It's got, you know, it's got a great position. It could be influential. There's no part of the earth which colonization could be affected with greater or sure prospect of national advantage. In other words, we could make a mint from this place. It'd be brilliant. But the crown have been restrained by higher motives from engaging in such an enterprise. Flip down to the uh, next bold bit. They've, they've concurred with that committee, the committee that was influenced by the Clapham reformers, that the increase of national wealth and power would be an inadequate compensation for the injury that would be inflicted on this kingdom itself. In embarking on a measure unjust and fraught with calamity to a numerous and inoffensive people, I mean, that's damning the faint praise, but you get the idea from the language of the time, whose title to the soil and sovereignty of New Zealand is indisputable and solemnly recognised by the British government. So, so the instruction to Hobson was, you need something to restrain this, because we can see that if this is not restrained, it will be a disaster, and it's not in our heart, and it will damage the people who are here. And that's like an amazing turnaround in British thinking, I've got to say. So, so in 1840, uh, Hobson comes and uh, Williams is drafted in, and they uh, really the, the the Maori and the the missionaries get together, and through lots of debate and discussion, and then some hurried translation into Te Reo Maori, a treaty is uh, kind of pulled together and drafted, and that's the text that we saw. So, and the Maori heard it orally, and they said at the time, "Well, you." You missionaries are kind of like our, our fathers in this. You'll help us to understand what this means and navigate this through, won't you? And they said yes. And it was really the influence of the Christian missionaries that the trusting relationships they built up over those previous years that led to Mary saying, you know, okay, you know, uh, yes, we, we, we think this is a, a thing to do. So um, so that really, um, that really was the, the in-detail lead-up. Now, I guess there are two big, steps in the story since then, covering a much bigger period of time. And the first is really from 1843 to about 1974. 
it didn't last long. The first thing that, that you know, when we think about those actors, the, the crown had come right by Mary at the influence of the missionaries. They'd come right next to right next to Mary and stood with their interest and, and been a bridge between their interest and the settlers, the whalers. But then very quickly, the capitalist instinct took over. They, they put the New Zealand company in charge of land acquisition for the crown. Bad move, putting the fox in charge of the hen house. So, and, and they kind of, they quite very quickly sort of gravitated towards thinking mostly about the interests of the settlers and the interests of Maori sort of faded from view. So, and that led, as you all know much better than me, to land wars from 1860 onwards and uh, confiscation of land, the suppression of Tereo, cultural suppression, and, and a, a number of things where um, it was like Maori's, uh, the, the, the things promised to Maori were sort of airbrushed out of the agreement. And we didn't really think about that. We just thought about the things that... that um, and the Maori went from being the vast majority, the 90% of the population, to being a minority of the population because the settlers expanded and Maori, um, their Maori had um, uh, poor access to health. Their lack of economy meant they had a lack of access to health uh, care as well. And so you saw the Maori population go right, right down. And the um, European population uh, continued as settlers arrived. And you can see this in terms of land. So this is just a, you know, from 1860, 1890, 1910, 1939, and then 2013. So the, f the ones on the left are the North Island only, the ones on the right are the North Island, the South Island. You can see that the, the things coloured in are the Maori land. So Maori went from, you know, obviously pretty much all the land in 1860 through to 5.5% of New Zealand freehold land as it is today, or as it was in 2013. I don't know the figures have since then. So this is um, this is a really you know obviously challenging time, but then it's not the end of the story, and uh, the next bits of the story I think are remarkable, and they're the things that you just take for granted, I'm sure, because you live here. But when you see it with international eyes, you go, "Really? Wow, that's amazing!" So in 1975, the next chapter opened, which was restoration. And it began with a hikoi, which is like a march. Um, a particular wahine um, set off with 50 people from not that far, not that far from here. By the time she and they got to Wellington, I think there were like 5,000 people. Is that right? Something like that. So really big growers, and lots of people were supporting them along the way, and they were protesting that essentially the the rights of Mary had been kind of airbrushed out of, 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 of things. And that really uh, led to a real awakening. That led to the Waitangi Tribunal being set up, but only to consider future issues and only to make recommendations not binding. So, But it was a start. It was a start. And then uh, 10 years later, that restoration expanded, so the tribunal got legal force for its... Uh, it was able to adjudicate and make awards that then went back to Parliament for ratification. And it also, critically, then, you know, didn't take the easy option of, of saying just look at things in the future that will treat you well in the future, but we'll just we'll just we'll just we'll just stay stop when the music stopped and I'm in a chair and you're not. Never mind. It was like no no we'll look back we'll look right back to the start right back to the first day of the treaty, and really um, the story that we've been living since is navigating that time. So they've been um, around. 2.2 billion in reparations, financial reparations. There have been cultural reparations and the renaming of places and re-establishing material names and things like that. But around in total now, 2.2 billion dollars in reparations. Now, you might think that's a lot of money. I just like to tell you that in the industry I work in, in healthcare, we spend that much money every four weeks. 
Okay, so in one industry in four weeks, we spend that amount of money. So it, it sounds like a big number, but in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, it's and it's it's not proportionate to what was lost, but it's uh, the settlement process goes with an acknowledgement, a telling of what happened, acknowledging the truth of what happened, an apology, some financial re reparation, and a, and they talk about healing the past, but then building for the future, and that's generally the form that a settlement takes. So. So that's what we've been living. But the values of that, the values that are coming through of acknowledging where we've wronged one another and making things right. Where have we heard that before? That kind of rings a bell. Which, which takes us nicely onto some of the spirituality of this. So if you haven't sort of noticed it before, you know, there are some amazing things in here. The first would be this, covenant and community. And I'll put land and jubilee there as well. So the, the covenant bit, um, that theologian I was telling you about, um, has as to Reese wrote this, he said, there is a covenant in the land embedded, a treaty birthed at Waitangi, a relational protocol providing a place to stand for all who belong. That's a real sense. And, and some of the, in fact, one of the Maori signatories to the treaty in 1840 saw it in that terms of a sacred covenant. And we know about a covenant. We're a people that we've just been, what have we just been doing? We're a people we stand because of covenant. You, know, you read in Deuteronomy, it says, God is a faithful God who keeps his covenant of love to a thousand generations. He's a God of covenant. And covenant is a, is a thing that there aren't lots of parallels in the world because it's not like a contract. It's more a contract. It's like, I work out what I get out of it. You work out what you get out of it. And we sort of trade it. Whereas a covenant is, is you're good at my expense. What am I committing to you regardless of what you do to me? What are you committing to me regardless of how I treat you? So this covenant is an amazing thing. And, it, and it's also more binding than anything we know. I mean, marriage is seen as a covenant. But even with marriage, you, know, you can see, well, what happens if there's adultery and there's a breaking of covenant? Yes, but, but actually the, the sense of scripture was, you talk about cutting covenant, the word literally means to, to bind, to fetter. And it was like covenants, once you're in covenant, that's the irrevocable man you're in. You're bound together for life. You know the expression, blood is thicker than water? Everyone know that expression? We all think it means, oh, well, family matters because family is blood. That's not what it means. What it actually means is the waters of birth, which is family, and the blood of covenant. So it's saying the blood of cutting covenant with someone is stronger even than family. That's how strong covenant is. So, hey... We know something about covenant. We know something. Now, we, we'll probably, through the course of this year, come back to look at covenant again because it's an amazing lens through which to look at what's going on. But we also were made a people. We've been looking at being a people of God. We've been looking at corporately God calling us to do things as a, as a people. So we, we are comfortable with, a, with a, a corporate identity as well as an individual identity. So this idea in a treaty of being between two groups, tangata fenua, tangata tuiti, well, we get that. Because we understand that we're the people of God. And there are some promises God makes to us as a collective, not just individually. And of course, with land, well, we have a pattern in Scripture. If you think about the law of Jubilee, it was that, do you know what people left to their own, device, their own devices do? Accumulate land and create inequality. So God just presses a reset button every generation that things would come back to family, come back to connectedness to land. So there's a restraint on that colonial expansionism. We can think about um, dual citizenship. You know, Paul said in Philippians 3, didn't he? Our citizenship is in heaven. 
And yet Paul was very happy when he was being about to be flogged to point out to the person about to flog him in Acts 22, you do know you're about to flog a Roman citizen, don't you? And the guy was like, oh, what, what? Oh, without having tr- given me a trial. So, so Paul could use his citizenship. He was a Hebrew. He was a Roman citizen. He was a citizen of heaven. And Joe, he was comfortable to move between them, being a person of place and being an, being an eternal part of it, God's eternal family. And, and that sense of being able to toggle between them, that's what being bicultural means. It's able to kind of connect with more than, in more than one way without it feeling awkward. Um, so there's other things we could look at. Um, oops, that's interesting. I've missed some. Oh, there we go. A weird, a weird order. Let's do that. So we see in Scripture, we read a bit today, the basis for unity, not uniformity, but two people. Think about Ephesians where it talks about God breaking down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles and creating one new thing that we would be a people and yet still be amazing and rich and different. You know, still there were instructions for uh, Gentiles and th- things for Jews. So, so for example, you know, Paul told uh, P- Paul told Peter off when Peter was acting exclusively by just eating with the Jews and treating Gentiles as unclean. But equally, when they thought that the Gentile widows were getting overlooked in the distribution of food in Acts, you remember we studied that last year? They did something about it, and they put someone who was a was a Gentile in charge of the thing. So they put the person who's been discriminated against in charge of it to uphold the manner of the people who might be overlooked. So it's all in there. It's all in there. We've got this really practical way. that There's the inspiration of in- incarnation. Those early missionaries from the Church Missionary Society came, just like Jesus came and dwelled among us. As, as it says in John 1, he, he tabernacled among us. You know, he 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 hung out with us. He he came to us. He wasn't wasn't distance. And they were a bit like you know the Clapham set people. They're a bit like when we were looking at Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah. They got engaged. They got when they could see that things were going to harm people. They stepped in. They got active, and they connected even with government and power, power brokers. And God's by His providence did something amazing, just like He did in 1840 here. That was God's providence doing something amazing, an amazing way of connecting those people. We think about um, the God of justice and the upside-down kingdom, um, you know, that even though, you know, Scripture's also clear, we don't show partiality to the poor or the rich, it says in Leviticus 19. But we also know that God has sent the rich empty away and he's lifted up those who are bowed down because the kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. So we bring all of that our understanding and um, and I think we bring also a knowledge about peacemaking. You know, whenever there is harm, there are three ways things can go. You can retreat, go off into your separate corners and stay separate. You can get revenge and lead to conflict. Or you can move to reconciliation. And what did God give us? He gave us a ministry of reconciliation because the first reconciliation is God is not counting our sins against us. We can be reconciled to him and then we can bring reconciliation to each other. So we're ministers that bring reconciliation. So all of these things, all of these things help us, help us to give us insights to see how this stuff um, connects with our heritage. And um, I think it was... um, the name of the bishop. Let me see if I can find his name. I forget his name. Anyway, he he basically the bishop said he said a um, 
looked at the treaty and he said, this treaty is two peoples committing to take the best possible care of each other. I thought that's a great summary. That's a great summary um, for us. And I guess um, as I finish this bit and we'll move on to the journey, um, I think, you know, you can see our unique place. This is our whakapapa. You know, we are the people of God. These are our Tipuna, our ancestors, people like Wilberforce, people like Williams and others. They're, they're our ancestors. You know, they're, in, in, in they're, they're our cloud of witnesses, really. And so um, we draw from their inspiring story and think about how we live out some of the same spirit today of restraining harm and really living for the good of all the people in the land and making a difference and ensuring that both Tangata Fenuit and Tangata Treaty can flourish. So the other thing I think we have as well is um, when things get a bit touchy, and you can see this in the media, um, we're actually quite good at this thing of like seeing a text and understanding that there's text in this tradition, but actually if you've got an I issue of disagreement, you go back to the text, right? So that's quite good <laughs> that we kind of have, have that understanding because we know that the issue about handling the word and handling things with integrity, like here is a text, it can't mean something different today than it meant when it was first received. They're great biblical principles, but they also apply to other ways of reading key documents like uh, the formation of a, a nation. So... Let's um, let's move on now to um, just um, thinking a little bit about the journey. So I think we've talked about most of those things. Um, but what it leads us to is a sense of how do we live as bicultural disciples? How do we live in a way that is comfortable in a world where that feels very at home for Māori and is comfortable in a world that feels at home for people of the treaty, uh, which is us? So... I sort of asked Johnny if he might uh, put him on the spot a little bit to say, um, what does it mean to him? Um, you know, so why don't you just come up for a second, Johnny? I, I texted him a few questions last night, so let me just see if I can find them. Put you on the spot here. So, okay. I texted him about eight questions. We won't ask eight because we'll be along here a long time. So, I guess um, maybe just start with, you know, how did, what did you know about Waitangi growing up? And how does it affect the way you think about the things you think? Um, well, yeah, just to... Pete started by talking about Nikki saying, why are you talking about this? Well, in some ways, um, you're the right person to talk about it because you do bring a fresh perspective. For me, um, growing up... Uh, oh, actually, the first time I went to Waitangi, grandmother took me, so I've got a photo of that trip up to Waitangi with you and Russell. Um, but... To be honest, Waitangi didn't really feature much in my mind or, or, or at all, really, growing up. Um, I w it was mostly mediated through the 6 o'clock news, and, and as that happens, it was mostly kind of presented as this scrappy day of, of fighting. Um, and so for me, I didn't really understand Waitangi. It wasn't until much later, really, that I began to appreciate some of the story, some of the text, some of these other things. Um, which is unfortunate, but that's just the way it was for me, being born in 86. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I guess when you think about it now, like what do you think, what does bicultural really mean to you? To, like how would that affect the way that you might do your, live, you live your life and work things out? Yeah, it does, it does affect me. Um, you know, even just hearing the story again today, uh, it's affecting, you know, it, it it reminds me that um, 
that I live my life as part of a story and it's nested within lots of different stories. So there's the story of my life and then that connects to the story of my family's life and that connects to the story of this land. Um, the reason that I am here is on mum's side through the Wakefield connection and on dad's side through the Scottish um, settlers who were here before the treaty. So, so um, I can trace my lineage back to those characters um, and that affects me. That shapes the material conditions of my life. All of that history, all of those people, all of those relationships. And also that that story sits within the story of the church, you know, and that sits within the story of scripture and what God's been doing through his people, through Jesus. So for me, um, I don't, yeah, I don't say my Christianity is this thing which is free-floating over here and then I have the rest of my life over here. I'm always looking to see how they're integrated, that all of these stories are nested together. So being bicultural is just an acknowledgement of being here. This is where God has placed me um, through, through, through his sovereign will that I was born here. And so to be bicultural means to recognize that, like Pete was saying, without the treaty, I don't have a place to stand here. Um, without the treaty, the only reason I am here is because of um, skullduggery, really. Um, but the treaty gives me gives me a place to stand, and so so that shapes me, yeah, really deeply. Wonderful, thank you. Um, maybe just one more. Um, is there anything out of this sense of a journey that would you know connect with your vision for urban and you know what your hopes would be for how we navigate this? Yeah. Um, so I also work for a college, so I'm involved in the tertiary sector, and there's a lot of tokenism, and there's a lot of, you know, everything has to be put through, um, how does this support the principles of TTDT, and there's a lot of games that get played, as everybody knows, and any kind of bureaucracy, there's often a lot of games that get played, um, and that, that for me, can be quite hard, and I don't want to live that way, I want to live authentically, and the same for us, like, I remember listening to a, a conversation with a, a an elder, Māori elder, and he was saying that, you know, people come and they do sort of consultation. You have to tick a box to get, you know, that I've consulted with a Māori person before I did this thing that I wanted to do. And he says that, you know, that's so demeaning and so insulting when, when, when they get used like that. But instead, um, consultation is really a cup of tea. And it's really like hundreds of cups of tea, you know, hundreds and hundreds of cups of tea, sitting down and getting to know people and listening to their story and being together across the table. So the same for, for Urban, you know, we are people in place. We're a church that are in this place, in this city and in this time. And so we are, um, we are whether we like it or not, going to have a relationship with Tangata Whenua. And it might be that our relationship is is nothing but that's that's a poor poor place to be but um equally poor is to sort of slap things on the top and and um make things look better than they really are um we need to start with a hundred a thousand cups of tea if we're going to learn to to actually be a bicultural church to actually know people who are tangata whenua um yeah fantastic that's a great takeaway takeaway 
bicultural journey equals a thousand cups of tea yeah. with with the with the people you're connecting with. 